Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the race for Victoria's Legislative Council and how the state election is looking in the last week of the Victorian election campaign. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Tim Colwatch. Tim is a journalist and a Victorian politics specialist who writes for Inside Story in The Age. Hello, Tim. Hi, how are you? And my second guest is Tom Clement. Tom is a data scientist and group voting ticket expert who runs the Geek Elections blog. Hello, Tom. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. So, probably the most interesting story that's developed since we last uh, had an episode is about the Legislative Council and the preferences. So, all 40 seats in the Victorian Upper House will be up for election in Saturday's state election, and the election may prove to be the most complex and unpredictable since the Upper House was reformed in 2006. Members of the Legislative Council are elected to represent one of eight regions, with each region electing five members. Victoria still uses the discredited group ticket voting system for their upper house five years after this system was last used to elect the Senate. This means that votes cast above the line are distributed according to the party's instructions, not the personal preferences of the voter. This system allowed parties in the Senate to give preferences to little-known parties en masse and thus to make it possible for those unknown parties to amass preferences and win seats, and the Victorian upper house is no different. Tom, who has done best out of the preferences lodged for the Victorian upper house? Well, if we're talking about best in terms of the least vote required in order to sort of guarantee yourself a seat in the upper house, um, it looks like the Transport Matters Party uh, in the eastern metropolitan region has, has certainly got the best deals on the table right now. Tim, do you feel like the um, the preference deals and the minor parties' role in this, in this state election is different to what it was last time? Uh, it's more sophisticated. It's more sweeping. Uh, we've got 18... Uh, parties standing, and every party is standing in every seat. Um, there's a couple of other parties that are just standing in one seat. In one case, that's also part of a preference deal. But um, by and large, it's uh, every party has been wrapped in, and even parties. There's a party called Hudson for Northern Victoria, which is set up so one guy, Josh Hudson, can try and win a seat in Northern Victoria in the upper house. And to do that, he's standing candidates in every seat around the state, all eight regions, um, so that he can use his preferences there as a payback for the preferences he's hoping to get in Northern Victoria. It's sort of the perfect ideal of showing how someone who really is only interested in getting elected in one place can can uh, benefit from running candidates all over the place. Yeah. Um, so I got the impression, Tom, that from looking at the preferences that there are kind of different parties that are in a strong position in each region. And what was interesting is you have this kind of cluster of 14 parties. They're not always preferencing each other, though, but they seem to have sort of a Venn diagram that there's a few parties that sort of hit the mark on every single on every single um, preference sheet. Um, I, well, I guess one of the more interesting things is I have not looked at the preference sheet at all. Right. I've, um, I've, I've looked at those in the past and trying to sort of fathom out which parties are necessarily cyclically helping each other out and determining, for, like, analytically, mm. uh, I found that to be a really problematic experience. Um, so instead, I just decided to program it and just simulate possible outcomes. And from that, like, you, you sort of don't even need to know which parties are banded together, but you can work it out by virtue of which ones have different strengths of preference deals and different minimum votes they need to get elected in all of the different regions across um, across Victoria. So who's who's jumped out at you? So just having a look through, so I, I guess the first thing I mentioned was Transport Matters Party in um, Eastern Metropolitan Region. They by far have, have the best deal in terms of minimum numbers of, minimum amount of votes to get that 
snowball rolling and get get that final seat. But uh, other parties that are definitely involved, uh, Health Australia in Eastern Metropolitan Region, if they poll well enough, uh, of the order of 1.8% to 2% primary vote, they've got a they've got a great chance of getting up there. Um, you've got the Liberal Democratic Party uh, in the Southeast Metropolitan Region. If they get can poll towards 2.2%, they're likely to get a seat there. And the Shooters and Fishers Party, they have two candidates currently contesting the election in two different regions, but their best shot at getting a seat is probably in the Western Metropolitan Region, which isn't one of these two candidates. Mm. And they only need about 2.1% to, to have a really good shot at a seat. Tim, I noticed when I was looking at the analysis that uh, it's not surprising that a lot of these small parties are all preferencing each other, but even some of the bigger parties, so Labor and the Greens, are preferencing each other reasonably high, and unsurprisingly, the Greens are preferencing some other small kind of progressive minor parties ahead of Labor. But in a bunch of places, parties like the Shooters or the Aussie Battler Party or the Transport Matters Party have been put higher on the Labor or Greens out of on the preference sheet than their rival. Does, is this a this is a bit of an evidence of the, the fact that Labor and the Greens haven't really been able to work out any kind of preference deal this election, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Labor and the Greens have a have a pretty, that's the most overused word, I suppose, at the moment, um, but toxic relationship in Victoria. Mm. They, they really have not been able to work together in any constructive way uh, ever since the Greens emerged as a political force at the 2002 election. And uh, it's continued this time with, the, with Labor lending itself to uh, support other parties, particularly in Western Victoria, was a, was a classic one where they've uh, given preferences to a lot of other parties. But also in um, another seat where a completely obscure party could has got a very good chance of winning, and that's Western Metro. Um, it's true that the shooters would win it if they got 2.1%, but I don't think the shooters are capable of winning 2.1% in Western, in a metropolitan electorate. I'd be very surprised if mm. they did. Um, but the Aussie Battler Party has got first preferences in that seat from seven other parties and second preferences from another three. And uh, Anthony Green's worked out that it would take them only about 0.3% of the vote to get elected. And you put up a new party with a name like Aussie Battler. You know, we've seen this happen with Family First, Australian Motoring Enthusiast Party, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. You know, if you come up with a, a new party, comes up with a cute sort of name that people feel is inoffensive, uh, they pick up preferences. And this is actually a guy who wants all, for example, all migrants to have a be on a 10-year kind of bond period where if they commit any offence, they get sent back. Uh, and he's not exactly... Um, Left wing. I was particularly amazed that the the Greens preference him that you know Labor has had a bit of a history in this area, but it does suggest from the Greens a kind of uh, a winner take all approach uh, towards Labor that w- was a little bit of a surprise. You know, you expect quite a bit of pragmatism from them, but that that did seem like a bit sorry from the Greens or from Labor from the Greens. Um, well, I think it's it's it's, it's a bad relationship on both sides, and Labor mm. has a long history of dudding the Greens in Victoria. That's that's how we've had. The DLP elected to the state parliament uh, in 2010. Uh, further back, Steve Fielding uh, elected in 2004 to the Senate. Ricky Muir into the Senate again in 2013. And, and then all those shooters who were elected last time, all of them with Labor preferences uh, ahead of the Greens. 
I mean, if you're thinking about Labor's ability to govern, you'd think it would uh, preference the Greens pretty well across the board. But it just doesn't happen like that here. It is interesting that from the history of New South Wales, when Labor was last in power in New South Wales, uh, they they had the option of either working with a combination of the Shooters and the Christian Democrats in the upper house or the Greens for a long period. They had this kind of, they had two different options of which way they would go. And nearly all the time they chose the right-wing minor parties. I think partly because those parties were much more willing to do deals where it's like, if you give us this thing we really care about, we will go along with everything else you want. Whereas the Greens approach was more, you know, we need to kind of have a cooperative relationship across the board and we're not going to give up on certain issues because you've given us something we want. So in that sense, I'm not totally surprised that a Labor government might say that they would prefer kind of a diverse crossbench rather than a big block of Greens. Mm. And it doesn't seem to have hurt them too much in this term. That's that's, uh, uh, Andrews has been able to govern, get get what he wanted through the Legislative Council um, by and large, uh, despite the fact that ideologically the crossbench is mostly against him, would mm. seem to be mostly against him. He's still been able to do the deals that have um, got him votes, enough votes when it mattered. I mean, it's it's also a bit game theoretic as well. So you've only got 16 LNP at least elected at the last election. And in, from, from that context, that means you've only got to get 21 votes to get over the line. That means you can leave three people behind and we'll see who's, who's going to throw out. Like, you've got such a diverse cohort to go with, you can almost give them nothing to get back. An important aspect to me, um, this weekend, last last weekend just finished, uh, Daniel Andrews personally went out attacking the Greens and uh, saying they had a toxic culture of uh, hostility to women or something like that. It was mm. taking advantage of the Jeremy Buckingham case and uh, a couple of minor things down here in Victoria, but to attack the Greens, basically. And saying he would never negotiate with the Greens, would not form a government with them. Okay, but what happens if they actually get back and they've lost a couple of seats to the Greens and they've lost you know, maybe one or two to the Libs and they're still the biggest party but they need to, to form an alliance with the Greens if they're going to govern. If we really expect to believe that Labor will simply ignore the Greens after that and, uh, and choose to go into opposition. Sounds very unlikely. My assumption has been that it's an opportunistic comment, and that if Labor gets back into government, or is in a, in a if Labor's in a position where they need the Greens to govern, they will find a way around it. There's certainly, if you read, um, there's a lot of interviews with Labor politicians in Sean Crow's book, Whitlam's Children, and you do get a sense from quite a few of them that their attitude is uh, it causes us such damage to be in government with the Greens that we should just kind of offer them nothing, and if they if they take it, then we'll govern. But if they don't, like if they if they raise the bidding, then we'll just walk away. And that is what happened in Tasmania in, in 1996. So, I mean, it is possible they would do that. But I think probably the assumption is that they would find a way to walk back their words in that case. Well, in Germany, yes, the Social Democrats and the Greens seem to end up in government together quite a lot. So I, I, I can't see how there's any intrinsic uh, inability to work together even though, admittedly, the Greens are carving off seats that used to be Labor's, and their whole growth depends really on, on carving off Labor seats. Um, nonetheless, you know, the country party was in the same position when it was founded, with now the Nationals. Uh, mm. It basically took seats off the Conservatives at the time, um, what they were called the Nationalists in those days. 
Uh, but the nationalists came to terms with them and sort of accepted, all right, um, we're going to have to share this gig that we once had to ourselves um, and we'll work together. But uh, Labor has, has had a hard time of doing that with the Greens and particularly in Victoria. I mean, you think back to Julia Gillard in 2010, who similarly said before the election that she would not form a government with the Greens, would have no truck with them after the election, and of course would not have a carbon tax. And then she went after the election when it turned out she needed the Greens. She uh, did indeed sort of sit down and negotiate with them. And it cost her because the credibility is uh, shredded. Mm. It's one of those things, you know, the promises made in the last week of the campaign are the first to be ditched when, you, when you've won. Yeah. 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 I mean, so I, I have two other thoughts about this before we move Doesn't on. I mean, it's a good idea to do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have two other thoughts. One is I noticed, so there was some analysis done at the last election that showed a big difference in the Liberal Democratic vote between the regions where they were to the left of the Liberal Party, where they did a lot better, and to the right That's of the Liberal Party. That's on the ticket. You mean on worse. the ticket, not in policy terms, of course. Yeah, yeah, physically <sighs> to the left of them on the piece of paper. They have the very first column on the East Metro ballot, which mm. in the 2013 Senate election was the position where David Lionhill managed to get elected with, I think it was about 11% of the primary vote. So are you seeing any evidence that whether we could see a similar thing with the, the Lib Dems doing particularly well in East Metro because of that? And it is a well, larger ballot yeah, than we've ever seen before. Yeah, but the Libs are six on the ballot, so that's, they're not that far down this time yeah. in that particular case. So I think there was a big gap um, in 2013. And also um, the party um, logos have to be shown on the ballot paper, mm-hmm. which is another thing that will reduce voter confusion as to which is the Liberal Party. Um, And sure, it's only where... uh, Actually, I think in 2016, Lionhelm didn't benefit particularly from his placement on the ballot paper. No, he Um, didn't do anywhere near as well. He was known by then. To me, one of the most interesting parts of this election and what I call Team Drury is that you've got, it seems to me, a sort of A team and a B team. And the A team are the team are the parties that already have, even at you know, modest, even if modest, nonetheless have some substantial name recognition and following. And they are the Hinch Justice Party, which Drury, of course, works for, uh, the Shooters, who have been his main client and who he got two seats for in 2014 in Victoria, and the LDP, which was alienated from him. But uh, looks like he and Lionhill must have made up because they they stand to be considerable beneficiaries if they can get about two percent of the vote uh, in a lot of these seats. Um, the LDP and, and Hinch are not always obvious on the ballot paper. They don't get the swag of preferences that Sustainable Australia or the Health Australia Party are getting in early preferences in some seats. But they're right in the middle there. And uh, once the small parties, the, micro, the smallest micro parties, those that don't really have even a one percent vote in their own right, once they drop out, uh, Hinch and the LDP have a well position to in a number of seats, a number of these eight regions, and uh, they could well end up with um, two or three members of, of the council. Yeah. So. Each. I mean, the last thing I'm wondering about is, so 
uh, we saw Senate reform in 2016, and then after that we saw a reform before the recent South Australian election where they got rid of group voting tickets. But it doesn't appear to me like there has been any reform in Victoria. No, no, I'm sorry, no, no attempt no, at with, uh, with reform. Have we see nothing, not even from the Greens? No. Well, the Greens can't do anything without Labor. So if you don't have Labor on board, they're the government. Uh, if you don't have the government on board, you won't get any voting reform. And as uh, it's very similar to the position that you and Tom were talking about before with New South Wales, that um, they prefer, I think, to have that mix of right-wing parties that they can negotiate with and do deals with than to uh, be reliant on the support of the Greens. And so uh, that you, they have shown no interest whatever in reforming. Mm. Actually, uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting thing because, because of the way the ballot works in, in New South Wales, you don't have to have group voting tickets to get micro parties up. They, they will just get up off their preferences alone. We've got one ballot. But in Victoria, mm. if, you don't have, if it's not all one ballot going mm. together to elect all 40, it's, it's very difficult to get the micros up without group voting tickets. So I wonder if that's oh, a yeah. tactical Hopefully. choice. Well, I guess the thing in yeah. New South Wales That's is... That's right. If, you, if, you, if Labor was to say, yes, we want voting reform, that would probably wreck the cooperation they're now getting from those uh, minor parties. And then they're forced on. to go back on all their words with the Greens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and I mean, that was always the fear that kind of put off the Turnbull government from reforming the Senate right up until they did, right? And it was part of their motivation for calling the double dissolution was we'll fix this system and then we'll wipe them all out. I mean, it didn't very quickly didn't yeah. work for them, but maybe that is also a motivation. Well, it does. Yeah. Well, that was always going to be a two-election setup. Yeah, if you've yeah, got a double dissolution, yeah. you've, you've got to get through the first six before Three you can get to Three election setup, the... really. Yeah. They'll need two half-centred elections to actually make the new system work yeah. as intended. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we'll move on from the upper house now, although the one thing I would say is, I mean, I've been seeing a lot of election analysts out there saying people should vote below the line. And I mean, that's personally my opinion that if people feel comfortable, you only have to number five boxes below the line, although, you know, number as many as you as you know and recognize. But it is interesting that. So I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on that kind of advice for voters about whether they should think about voting below the line. Oh, sure. Well, I've given them that advice in the past. I always vote below the line myself and I um, I think the while it was a substantial disincentive when you had to fill out a uh, number every um, square, uh, now that the, as in Victoria, as in the Senate, um, we did at least get that reform through some time ago that reduced it down to uh, only five. That's very good and, uh, yeah, I certainly encourage people to vote below the line. It's your, then you own your own preferences rather than uh, have them go in some direction you wouldn't like because some party backroom dealers have, have done a deal that way. Definitely voting below the line. Um, from a mathematical perspective, I love group voting tickets, but that absolutely is not worth it for the undermining of democracy that they, they obviously perform. Mm. So. I think, yeah, I think it's an important principle that people should be elected because they have significant support and not because of some accidental deal, preference deal, the accident of some preference deals done by um, people in back rooms. It's, uh, um, I think it's just an important part of democracy. You own your own Absolutely. Vote. But the other thing I wanted to say then was that I think this is going to be, the, the impact of Drury's team is going to be much more powerful this time, that I can't see any of the eight regions that they're likely to miss out. I think 
you know, last time they got five seats. This time I think they'll get at least eight. And it's even possible, I don't know that's likely, but it's possible that in some electorates they might even get two up. I'm, I'm hoping. I think Western metropolitan regions like the, the last bastion of hope for, for no micros there. I'm, I'm guessing maybe one Liberal, maybe even three Labor and a Green, but that's mm-hmm. the that's the closest to not getting a micro that I can see. That's interesting, and that's based on the idea that the Aussie Battler Party maybe doesn't even get the small number of votes they'd need to get elected. So recent polling in the state election has suggested that Labor has been increasing their lead. We saw a reach tell poll last week that put Labor on 56% of the two-party preferred vote. That's their best result in over two years. Uh, other recent polling has had them on between 52 and 54%. Uh, but we haven't had a lot of polling. That's over. We've only had about five polls in the last two months. Tim, this polling suggests Labor has a strong lead. Does this fit in with the campaign that you've been watching? Um, it's very hard to tell. Uh, and I'd, I'd be weary of that reach tell poll because it was not by a sort of newspaper or sort of... Um, it, was, it was by an organi- done for an organisation that has an interest in the outcome. Mm. And uh, we don't know the precise sort of questions that were asked beforehand, for example, whereas uh, the polls they do for newspapers tend to be... Um, much more kind of carefully scripted so that they're, they're not leaning one way or the other. Um, in fact, the last poll that was done for a newspaper, the last statewide poll, was taken four weeks out, which is, leaves us really with a big gap of, of information. Yet, I guess the reach tell poll you mentioned is um, some sort of... tends to confirm that Labor has a big lead, and uh, two weeks out... Uh, Galaxy, or the, what's now YouGov Galaxy, did some seat polling for the Herald Sun, which again found Labor increasing its majority in uh, some of the really crucial seats like Mordialic and Frankston and Geelong and, and even Richmond, where mm. it's fighting the Greens. So uh, that, that would tend to suggest that they're doing well. But if you ask what's been the issue of the campaign, in a sense, the defining moment of the campaign really was that crazed killer in Burke Street mm-hmm. and what the who turns out he was on bail and this sort of all fits in with the Liberals policies of making the bail laws really t- much tougher you know today Matthew Guy's come out saying he's going to have a um, if the Liberals get in they will publish every three months a, a sheet on how judges have um, what sort of sentences particular judges have given and uh, basically inviting people to turn and say to the judges if they, they give what are perceived as soft penalties. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's been the main theme of the Liberal campaign, as this law and order theme, and in a sense that the Burke Street killings have played a, a part in that. If the Labor government was to get this larger majority, would you um, do you think that would sort of change the way they've been acting, sort of make them more... I mean, they've... It's not like they haven't been particularly adventurous as far as Labor governments go, but do you think that would change their direction at all? Well, it's it's certainly one big issue that interests me is the issue of their infrastructure spending because it has been a big part of the reason for their success. There's no two ways about it. They have built a lot more infrastructure than any Victorian government for a very long time, like 40 years. And uh, for the first time in my recent experience that Victoria is now spending as much as other states are on investing in infrastructure. You might think that obviously the states should do that, but it's been an extraordinary tradition here 
um, stemming influence partly by Kennett's um, making Kennett government making uh, a uh, making it a crime almost to increase state debt. Uh, it's meant that governments have underinvested and underinvested year after year after year, and um, so the, the infrastructure problems of Melbourne have built up. Now they're finally tackling them, and people like that, and they see all the work being done, and I think that's been their sort of their badge, if you mm. like, with the electorate. That's been their core achievement, and uh, and also the Victorian economy is doing well. So so that's a, a second reason why they're likely to be elected. Now, the problem with that is that when they get back, uh, they are actually proposing to build less infrastructure uh, in future than they have in the past because they don't want to risk the state's AAA credit rating. And it, um, it's a pretty obscure issue whether the state is rated AAA or AA. It should really be only of interest to people in financial markets. But the, again, the Kennett government made it a sort of uh, symbol of uh, what governments have to have to be doing, and they have to maintain a triple A credit rating, which means they have to have very little debt, which means they can't borrow, and if they can't borrow, that means they can't build uh, mm. much unless they're going to increase taxes. And um, now I'm I'm going to be very interested to see what Labor's attitude is if it if it does get back with an increased majority, uh, will it finally have the um, courage to take on that attitude and just say, look, the infrastructure is more important to us than the AAA credit rating. Uh, we're going to build it anyway. Now, the only government that's done that in the past has been Anna Bly's government in Queensland, and we know what happened to that. It, it just got uh, pilloried and uh, it was presented as having been irresponsible and uh, spendthrift and losing track of the state's um, uh, budget, uh, losing control of state budget, when in fact it was actually building infrastructure that was going to pay for its, pay its way and was in the interests of, of Queensland. And, but uh, you know how these myths can spread in politics. The key to the last two Victorian elections has been four of the seats down on the Frankston railway line, um, Bentley, Mordialloc, Carrum and Frankston, um, that while they actually differ quite a lot uh, among themselves. They, nonetheless, they have voted as a block in the last four state elections. They've either been all Labor or all Liberal. And Liberals won government in 2010 because they won all four of them. Labor won government in 2014 because it won all four of them. Mm. And uh, as I mentioned, they have been polling in, in Mordialloc and, and Frankston, which did point to Labor increasing its lead. But that is clearly the key battleground. That's the first key battleground. The Liberals have to win some of those seats, and uh, preferably all of them, if they're going to form government. The second one is what I call the sort of upwardly mobile seats of inner Melbourne, and in particular Paran, which mm. the Greens unexpectedly took from the Liberals last time by a very small majority as the closest seat at the election. And uh, both Labor and the Liberals have hopes of winning that seat back this time. Uh, next door is Albert Park, which is now the richest electorate in Victoria in terms of household income. It's still Labor, but uh, at some point it's going to become a Liberal seat. And I doubt that they have... I don't know that they've done the work at the moment on um, social policy to to win that elect electorate, but uh, it's, it's a seat that's going to be watched 
and there's six like Ivanhoe and Eltham, which are also reasonably um, well off and usually go to the winner um, of any Victorian election. And uh, so those those are the kind of those are the two key areas where I see the Liberals having their best chance of making progress. They also need to win some seats in the regional cities, and there's no evidence that that's going to happen. And they also need to win some seats in the outer suburbs. And uh, Cranbourne is, is particularly one that they hope to win, um, but they'll need to win a few others. Um, and we know that the voters in the new housing estates tend to be Labor voters, so that, that makes it hard for them in, in a seat like, for example, Cranbourne has had uh, hmm. 13, 15,000 people added to the rolls in the last four years. It's been a very rapid growth. So that's about it for this episode of The Tally Room. Thank you to both Tom and Tim for joining me. And thanks for all your work, Ben, keeping us informed on a whole range of topics on your on The Tally Room website. I can give it a plug. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, there'll be another one in a minute. Um, the, so The Tally Room blog won't actually be covering election night this Saturday night. I'm... Uh, I've got my brother's wedding, um, so uh, but there will be plenty to read about the Victorian state election before Saturday, and then uh, there will definitely be some analysis on Sunday. So please join me there. People will have to look on the Age website on Saturday night. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode and once again, thanks for listening.